Hello everyone and welcome to episode 317 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now joining me on today's episode for me is one of the best directors we have in the country. Yes, I'm joined by Jake West. Jake is responsible for a number of titles you may have heard of, stuff like Razorblade Smile, The ABCs of Death, Evil Aliens, Doghouse and so much more. But on today's episode we focus on his documentary which has just come out called Mancurian Man, The Legendary Life of Cliff Tremlow. And honestly it's absolutely awesome. I've been lucky enough to be sent an advanced screener and it blew me away. I didn't know anything about Cliff's life until seeing this documentary and now I'm obsessed. And I think Jake has done an absolutely amazing job and I'm so thrilled that he's joining me today on Mark and Me podcast. But before I get there, let's quickly touch base and just talk about my last episode. It was only a few days ago it came out, but I was joined by an acting legend, Philip Martin Brown. A huge thank you to everyone that listened and tuned in. It meant so much. Also, Philip, for sharing it again on your socials. That really means a lot and gets a lot of new listeners. And honestly, the response was amazing. So thank you. But today I want to talk about Jake West, a lovely guy, a heart of gold and really knows his stuff. I truly believe there's probably no one in the country that knows horror like him. And I'm going to say it now. I welcome you back on this podcast whenever you want, because I think we could talk for not even hours, days about your knowledge in film. You blew my mind in the half an hour we had, and I can't wait to talk again. But until then, I think now it's time to give the people out there this episode. So here's me and Jake talking all things film. So Jake, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Excellent. It's a pleasure to join you, Mark. Jake, our paths have crossed quite a few times, uh, sometimes without us knowing, uh, most recently at FrightFest. But what I really want to do today is go right back to the beginning. So I'm always interested when I talk to directors and writers and people in the film industry, how it all started. So when you were a kid, can you remember those early movies that you watched that made you fall in love with cinema? Yeah, I mean, I I was very lucky because both my my mum and my dad were both big film fans, and they yeah. always used to, they used to take me to the cinema um, regularly. Plus, if there was something good coming up on TV, like that my dad would say, "Oh no, this is the Sergio Leone Dollars trilogy. You've got to watch it." <laughs> wow. As a, as, as a kid, I was constantly kind of being introduced to stuff, but mo- mostly because of probably screenings on TV. But um, my very early memories of going to the cinema. Um, there used to be a Disney cinema in London, which used to show films like, um, uh, you know, kind of um, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, Island on Top of the World, all those kind of Disney things like Herbie and stuff like that. And we would go there when we were very young, which as a kind of treat, which was always brilliant. And, you know, it's kind of a rep cinema where they used to show their older films, but, um, you know, one of our dinosaurs is missing, all those kind of stuff. So as a kid, that was that was amazing. But as I, as I kind of got, you know, I was a kid in this, you know, I was, I was young in the kid in the seventies. So when I was seven years old, Star Wars came out, for instance. Oh wow! So okay, I went, to, I went to see Star Wars, and then after I'd seen Star Wars, was, I saw Spielberg was doing Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know, a few years later. Now so you're was, making I, me really jealous. So I'm kind of begging my. Mother, I was technically <laughs> too young to go and see Close Encounters. I think for the, I think it was a day, a or something. But I managed to sort of plead with my mum to take me. But when I saw it, I was actually coming down with me with um, chicken pox. Oh wow! <laughs> 
I was really, really kind of out of it and lucky, but I pretended I was okay so I could watch this film in the cinema, which probably wasn't such a smart move, really, but <laughs> anything to get to the cinema. <laughs> I love it. I mean, there's some incredible foundations. You don't get much bigger than Star Wars and any anything yeah. by Spielberg I absolutely love. I think and, the, and then on, on the other side of it, all the stuff that used to get shown on television a lot at the weekends, they'd often be on BBC Two, double bills of the Universal Monsters films, you know, so Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman, all that stuff. And then when they had finished, you'd normally then have a cycle of Hammer films as well. So I got to all the Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, all these guys were my were my kind of heroes growing up. So I had posters and cards of them and things like that. So um, I remember when I saw uh, Peter Cushing in, in Star Wars, it was like, hold on, that's the guy from, from um, you know, Dracula, he's Van Helsing. Kind of all starting <laughs> to click, yeah. yeah it's amazing, yeah. isn't it, that? Like, it's quite nostalgia, but when you're a kid, you don't realise, you do believe they're those characters, so you might be like, that's Obi-Wan Kenobi, and then you see something else, and you're like, hang on a minute, like, I love that kind of being so naive as a child, that you're like, I didn't realise that that is the same person, like, that can play it, different it, it's characters. For me, but normally in the Hammer films, um, it was, you know, um, Peter Cushing normally played yeah. the, the Van Helsing, the good character, so I was more expecting Christopher Lee to be to be you know kind of Grand Moff Tarkin, who's a bad guy. But obviously Christopher Lee, it took him another 20, 30 years before he popped up in Star Wars, and unfortunately not as good. But but I, it was interesting because my my idea of, of Peter was more playing a good guy at that point. Yeah. I know he like uh, Doctor Frankenstein. That was probably the his sort of evil character. But normally he tended to play more the the kind of like the hero characters in the Hammer films. So as a kid, that was interesting for my uh, my for my young brain. Sorry, my fence going off there. Um, so yeah, so yeah, I was steeped in cinema as a as a child, and I was always yeah like pleading to go to the cinema. And you know, another great cinema trip um, when I was I think it must have been I can't remember exactly what year it is Raiders of the Lost Ark, but um, my mum and dad took me up to London to go and see Raiders of the Lost Ark in a cinema on Baker Street. And uh, the whole cinema was packed and, you know, I, I didn't really know anything about it because I hadn't seen any trailers, but people were buzzing talking about how great this film was. And that was a, an amazing audience experience as uh, as like, uh, I think I must have been about 12 or 13. Oh, wow. And the whole cinema was just cheering and, you know, it felt very different in the cinema in those days as well because... People because weren't on their fucking phones, yeah, which is a good yeah, start. This is, also, <laughs> this is also going to the cinema pre before people had video recorders even. You know, the only time you would ever get to see a film was on television or, and the cinema was yeah. the place you saw films. This, it wasn't until like 1984 that we, we got a video recorder. And also you only had like three channels. You had, you know, I, That's it. BBC Two and ITV. And <laughs> so it was very, very different. So going to the movies was this massive, important event and... The other thing I loved about cinema was a sense of going into a different space and this kind of ritual. And one of the, I've been talking about this recently. One of the things I really miss about cinemas, and perhaps you're too young to even remember this, but when you used to go to the cinema, every cinema that you went to would have a big curtain over the screen. Normally, a I big remember screen. this. But you do remember? Yeah, I'm I'm yeah. 41, so I used to go yeah. in the late 80s. Yeah, so, and, so, yeah. So, but what now? No cinemas that I go to have a curtain that opens up, and that may be a holdover from the old days of when cinema was more coming out from theatre and music hall and all those things. But there's something really when those curtains opened up, 
it felt like it was revealing something. It, it was like magical, it, yeah. It was like, now it it's like the time, some, yeah. Yeah, it felt like it was some kind of ritual. It felt like special. And I don't know why cinemas have stopped. stopped it's like an unveiling, there. isn't it? Like, here you yeah. are, now let's see what's yeah. behind there here. There also used to be things where if a film was in, if a film was in, like, um, widescreen, cinemascope, yeah. there would also be some things which would move in and block off the top and the bottom of the screen. So you, would, so you wouldn't have a distracting, you know, like, area above. So that was another thing. But I really miss, I know that, that it sounds really silly, but I miss that kind of stuff because it's it felt really, really special. So there's people listening to us now thinking, all right, granddad's like, you know. <laughs> yeah, I, know, I, I completely, completely appreciate it. It shows my age. But, but for me, it, cinema was almost like this much more intense. It was a bigger experience because it was, it was different to watching a film on TV. And you've got to remember, people, we had four free TVs with kind of mono sound back in yeah. those days. So, you know, in fact, that we didn't even have a colour TV probably until I was about 12, 13 years old. <laughs> it, was, it was like a family event for me. On a Saturday, my parents would take me in the morning to uh, a cinema in Shrewsbury. And it was like, go on then, you can have your bag of sweets, your popcorn, you go in. It seemed like your drink was big enough to last you a week, and then the the, the film was this big like spectacle. It was incredible because you had like a Looney Tunes animation before it even started. Halfway through, there was like an interval, and a woman would come down and offer you an ice yeah, cream and all yeah, this. Great. Yeah, yeah. And then the and then you wouldn't you wouldn't have people on their mobile phones texting or pissing around, and it was just like an event, and it was like the highlight of my whole week. And I just even just talking to you now, I'm like people don't have any idea like we take it for granted but it was so special it really was and i mean one one thing that possibly has changed for the best though <laughs> is that you used to be able to smoke in cinemas that's as well. crazy and, isn't it yeah, people would be smoking and the, the whole cinema would be like full of smoke like a kind of sisters of mercy concert or i always <laughs> remember like the ashtrays yeah. on uh yeah, in front of, ashtrays, yeah but, that's... but one thing i remember as a kid when I used to look back at the projector, you turn around in your seat and look back at the projector behind you. And when there was smoke in the auditorium, you got this kind of incredible <laughs> kind of had like kind of like grey of light kind of glowing. So that used to be, you know, that used to be something. But to be honest, the, the smoking bit is the one thing I, I don't miss that about cinemas because I'm not a smoker. Yeah, but, I don't want my um, clothes stinking for a week because yeah, I went I mean, to see Back to the Future. Every, people smoked everywhere. They smoked on airplanes. Yeah. So <laughs> where, yeah, it's funny because everyone's clothes used to smell of smoke regardless back in those days. So, <laughs> so, so I suppose that, um, having parents that were so into film and, you know, uh, encouraging you to go, it must have been amazing when you turn around them and say look I, I want to have a career in film I want to be a director I want to write because that for some parents I think is their biggest fear you know like well, it's not well, a real job or yeah well what it was it, it didn't it didn't kind of happen with one day I just said I want to be a director or writer. yeah I really I was really fascinated about filmmaking but it, I didn't know anyone in the film industry per se so it wasn't it wasn't an industry you could just get into I mean I was born in London but when I was five years old my parents moved out to Kent. Um, so I was my, I was in Tunbridge Wells in Kent when I was from five to about 19. So what 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 that meant is, you know, like being aware of cinema and when I should, occasionally you might see a thing which had a set report and, you know, like film, whatever year it was with Barry Norman, sometimes there'd be set reports and you get a glimpse of the filming and the process. But, you know, in, in this pre-DVD extras world, there was very little information about the actual how films were made. So I kind of, anything I could kind of get any information about that, I would just kind of suck the marrow out of it as much as I could because I was fascinated to do that. 
Um, but the way I managed to get into into sort of learning filmmaking because video cameras were coming out in the early 80s so there was an opportunity to start shooting things on video but I couldn't I couldn't afford a video camera but what I did is I, I had a part-time job at, at Kentucky Fried Chicken when I was a teenager like about 15 16. I worked there for a couple of years and I saved up for two years so I could buy a video camera like a, a it was a SVHS JVC GR707 video camera, which was fantastic at the time. So it took me two years. So then I was able to go out and start shooting things with my with my friends. But of course, you didn't have any editing software. You just had a video recorder. So you you, you tended to try and edit in camera, <laughs> you know, as you were going. So I love there it. Was no way of doing it. Um, so, but it was a way of getting out and being able to shoot stuff and really learn how to to sort of just have. So I was having a lot of fun doing it that way. Then at the sixth film college I was at, West Kent College in Tunbridge in Kent, um, they started a thing called a, a BTEC in media production. Um, and that meant they had a module which had um, video production as a module on it. And that and that they started that up so that they had editing suites in the in the building then. So low, low band pneumatic editing suites. So for the first time I did that course and for the first time it meant all the stuff that I could shoot, I could then edit. So I used to stay, I used to stay late after college and I'll just say, do you mind if I carry on learning how to use the editing suite? And they would they would just let me in there. And then when the, the the guy was cleaning up, they would just let let me let me out then. That's amazing. So, so often I was there till like nine nine o'clock in the evening, or whenever the the janitor came around and said, "Right, we've got to go." So I would I would I spent a long long time just figuring out how to edit stuff. And that is is a, is always been a really key skill. I think you know it was Alfred Hitchcock that said editing is the language of cinema. And if you so if you don't know how to if you don't know how to edit, you don't actually know how to speak cinema in a way. So I, I think every director should learn how to edit. Obviously, it's a lot easier now because you, you've got an editing program. Everyone can get one on their laptop or their computer or even on their phone now. So, but back in those days, that was the big thing because it, it was a very expensive thing to be able to do that. So. That really kind of grounded me in it. And then when I said to my parents, look, I'm really, uh, and I was good, you know, I was making films way more accomplished than everybody else at that at that level. So I was kind of being marked out somebody, oh, this guy, you know, can do this. So that, at that point, when I said to my parents that I really would like to go and do a film degree, and there weren't many colleges in the country that did that either at that time. This was um, 1990 by the time I, I went to film school. I'm 89, I think. I was 19 years old. So, um that was my way of getting into into film by really, but I've been, so by the time I went to film school, I've been making films with my mates and stuff for you know about sort of four or five years, but you know not accomplished stuff. But I was shooting all the time and doing stuff, and that really gave me a grounding. And also, I really knew that I enjoyed it and I loved doing that that stuff. So that was that's kind of the process of how I kind of got into it on that path. And then looking at your career, kind of when you started in the, I think, mid-90s, directing shorts and short videos and getting involved, you didn't really stop. Your, your, your work schedule from kind of 2000 onwards, you're so busy. You're doing so many like documentaries and extras. You are one of the busiest people that I've ever met, I think, that never stops. Oh. And it's oh, so you. good to see that you've got this incredible work ethic, but absolute passion that goes into everything you do oh thank you very much yeah i mean the thing is is that like i say when i when i left film school which was 1992 um you know i was working as a runner in a post-production company i was like the night runner and I, I used to go out and 
when people wanted like a late night snack or they wanted a pack of cigarettes or they wanted a certain type of booze. I, I, in Soho, I knew all of the places were open late so I could figure out <laughs> anything that somebody wanted. <laughs> you know, and you used to have a lot of people coming into, they had telecine suites those days and a lot of people doing prop promos were coming into telecine to do, and they would work late. So I'd try and hang out and have a look at what was going on there as well. But because I had editing sort of skills and I developed those all through my, my kind of student life, I actually was only a runner for about sort of five four or five months and then I actually got a job as a as a freelance editor at a trailer company Amazing. so so that that was me kind of really sort of pushing so I was I was always like trying to do the next thing um because my my kind of like my low budget film heroes were were Don Corsgrelli who made Phantasm when he was a teenager about 17 18 and then Sam Raimi who had made Evil Dead when he was 19 years old I was thinking, God, I'm I'm, t- I'm taking ages to try and get a first feature film made because I didn't get I didn't get Razor Blade Smile made till I was 26 years old, and to me, I thought, God, I'm you know I really need to get cracking on here. But it was it was very hard because it was you, trying to get finance, trying to get anyone to believe in you when you hadn't made a film. So what, I mean, when I made Razor Blade Film, just to give you a difference of how how different the film industry was because once again we're talking in a world where people didn't have home computers, they didn't yeah. have. In the year that I made Razor Blade Smile, I was like one of about only 15 or 16 feature films that were made in the UK in that year. <laughs> now, I don't know what that, that blows number, my mind. I imagine we're talking thousands of yeah. things, you know, now. But that's how, that's how different it was. But you had to shoot on film if you were going to get a release. Generally, certainly if you're going to get a cinema release, obviously with Cliff, he bucked that trend as we'll move on to with yeah. Mancunian in a minute but but technically if you wanted to get a cinema release and try and get your film out in a bigger way if you didn't shoot on film you were going to be hampered by that so i choose I, you know i shot my first um feature film race based smile a vampire movie on 16 mil because that was a way that i felt there would be a bigger opportunity for it if people liked it and we were fortunate enough that they did and we ended up getting a cinema release so that paid off so but you know yeah i mean i like to say the reason i made a vampire film is because growing up as a as a fan of hammer and <laughs> amicus and all those 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 films so it was something that i thought okay what's a great if i'm going to do a, a horror film what's a kind of low budget monster and it's kind of like one well, of a vampire is is the best in low budget so you you know you just get some good makeup and a set of teeth yeah but, but yeah so, but, so it's actually a lot more simple from a, an effects point of view so that, that was kind of my thinking at the time but it's also because i love the vampire genre yeah and also being a kind of punk goth and i knew people on the kind of vampire scene and there was the london vampire group and you know at that point you had fetish fashion kind of coming in to the mainstream more so I was using all the things around me that I thought vampires would like at that time. So that was that was my kind of sort of aim going forwards. And obviously going forwards, you just mentioned Cliff. At the moment, you're promoting Mancurian Man. Um, this documentary, obviously, I'd love to know where the idea came from and was it quite easy to get over the line to get greenlit? Because I understand by speaking to a lot of documentary makers, I had Alex Winter on recently, how hard it is to get those documentaries made yeah well i mean and every project has its own kind of um strange history i suppose you know, the way the way any film ever gets finished and made is always a, is almost a kind of some sort of kind of uh, chain of coincidences and kind of fortune favoring the right moment so every time a project gets actually kind of greenlit and on the way that's always a special moment for any any director 
um, how I got interested in Cliff and it, originally, I because I think you may have seen my documentaries that I've done on the video nasties. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, when we were doing the video nasties documentary, GBH, Cliff's m- most well-known film, was a video nasty back in back in the day. So when we were doing doing those interviews, we interviewed um, a guy called CP Lee, who wrote the book The Lost World of Cliff Twemlow. So we got him in, but we got him in just to talk about GBH because that was the video nasty. Um, and he was telling us about all these other other films that Cliff had done. And I didn't know I didn't know Cliff's work at that point. So I wasn't aware that Cliff had done like a whole bunch of other movies. But also that's because a lot of them hadn't always been finished and they certainly hadn't got proper releases, a lot of them. And they were incredibly hard to find at a time. You know, once again, you couldn't, you, it's still actually hard to find Cliff's movies now. So <laughs> even harder back in those days. <laughs> um, so outside of GBH, I was like, okay, this guy, I became aware that Cliff had done all these other movies and, and, um, you know, CP Lee was really kind of banging the, the Twemlow drum, going at how great all of this stuff was. So that was that was kind of interesting. But it was so it was actually then three three years ago. I got um, David Gregory at Severin Films contacted me because they're 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 interested in doing um, a a box set of of Cliff's work. Oh, so okay. They, yeah. So David wants to do like a big bigger box set with um, all of well, as many of Cliff's films that he can license to get on there. And he was interested in having a, a supplementary, like a feature doc, feature documentary made about Cliff as well to, to really give that some, put meat on the bones for that experience. Um, so he, he'd got in contact with me and he asked me if I was interested in taking that on. So I thought, yeah, I mean, Cliff is, a, Cliff is an interesting, really interesting character. And But I didn't, outside of GBH, I didn't, I knew he had made these other films, but I wasn't aware of what they were. I hadn't seen them. So that's when the process started. So I said to David, look, well, as, as long as you're not in any, in any rush for this, because I'm going to have to research this quite a lot. And also we're going to then have to find all of the archive and all of the films and all the rest of it. And that's where Mark Morris, my business partner at Nucleus Films comes in. Like I say, Mark is the, I call him the Sherlock Holmes of the video world. <laughs> he can kind of find anything. So he's, You name he's, it, he'll find it. Yeah, exactly. So he started the search to, to try and find all the best materials and a lot of this amazing archive stuff, which is a process which we're still actually finishing up on. We're still chasing up certain things. But I had versions of... So but after a certain amount of time, I had versions of pretty much all of Cliff's work that, you know, in whatever states, whether it was a un- completely unfinished edit or if it was, you know, stuff that had been released and then just forgotten. Um, so basically from that, I was learning about Cliff all the time. And at the same time, we were reaching out to all the people that work with him to interview them. But because they're, although quite a few of them are in Manchester, some are scattered around the different parts of the UK. So just tracking people down and arranging a time to film them. And that just was a process that, that took a lot of time. Plus you have the pandemic in the middle of that as well. So things, but it, what was good about that process, it wasn't like a rushed piece of work it was a, a it was a piece of work that would organically grow and every time you you did an interview you would get even more information and more insight so this kind of edit um like a, a documentary edit I, I say the difference between a documentary edit and a narrative film edit is is that for me a documentary is like a sculpture yeah. because because every time you're adding stuff in, you've got this, this it's like this clay that you're, you, you know, you're either, or a tree that you're chipping away at just to, try, to reveal the shape. The story, the story is constantly evolving when you're doing a good documentary. When you're doing a narrative feature, it's like having, you've got a blueprint 
and you shoot you shoot the blueprint and then you put it together according to the blueprint so it's really it's a really different experience but that's why for me documentaries just generally take a lot longer for me to do because i think you really need to to, to understand what what the story is and trying to shape that so as we were going on with Cliff, certain themes began to emerge, like this kind of boom and bust process in his life where things would be great and then he would get to the top of a hill and then come tumbling down the other side. And, you know, trying to understand how he approached the, the, the film and his world. So it, it was, yeah, a, a fascinating journey. And Cliff is a larger-than-life character, as you've, probably, as you've seen in the thing, so the film. And that was just an, an interesting story to tell, so I really got into it. I... I... I don't know how it must be a minefield. You can whittle that down to a two-hour documentary when you must have wanted to do like a ten-hour director's cut. Well, the first, the first, the first like complete edit that I screened yeah. for David was over four hours long. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wish we and could that, see that. And it, and there's loads of great stuff in that that had to go because yeah. you know, I mean, in the end, we had a, a documentary which is two hours long, which is, is still quite a long documentary. But we are covering Cliff's entire life. His yeah. life all of the films he did so you know i wanted it to feel that that, that we weren't scrimping on details and certain things but I, I feel that the film sustains that i do feel that that there's enough in there for you to keep the audience really engaged with it was was there moments that you felt you had to cut parts because they're just too personal just they shouldn't be for the public's eyes um no on the whole it wasn't really it was it was more just a, having a wealth of so many anecdotes it was more yeah. like Pick which are the ones which are going to be the what's the real kind of a material? What's the stuff that people are really going to respond to? Um, because you know, Cliff wasn't a pretentious filmmaker, so it wasn't it wasn't that that the people you know and the guys he was working with were generally you know like working class. They were like doormen, bouncers, martial artists, models. They were all his friends. So it, you're not. It's not like we were interviewing Steven Spielberg or or, or uh, you know kind of like a uh, Al Pacino. And, but they, it's not like they had huge processes when they were working. It was more a miracle that these things got done. And and the, for them, learning how to to even make films and all of the mistakes they made, which is often some of the most entertaining parts of the documentary, is because in many ways they were you know, slightly incompetent with the filmmaking. But it, it tells great stories, but the, the passion and the heart, the desire to do it is what Cliff really projected. And that's really what he succeeded with, I think. And, you know, as a as a person, you really warm to him, but you can't help but like a guy who is so so kind of single track focused yeah. on getting something done. <laughs> um, now this is done, it's out there for the world to see. What What's kind of next on your kind of journey? Have you got pen to paper you're looking at directing or are you already in a project that you can't talk about or i mean um, someone like you well, doesn't yeah, stop I've, so well, I've, I've 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 been wanting to make a, a like another narrative feature for ages and i i've had a werewolf film script which i've been almost a bit got off the ground a couple of times once again um pre-pandemic that was very close to to getting a green light and getting some finance but then that fell to the wayside and then Twemlo kind of took over but I'm at the moment it's looking that things may be beginning to, to the, the, maybe the, the film gods are smiling and there might be a chance to get that made finally so I would love to be in production on that but I, I don't want to jinx it so no. you know no. well, I'll keep everything um, crossed for you yeah um there's a couple there's a few other little projects that I'm working on with Nucleus which I can't reveal just yet but we are remastering the video nasty sets for Blu-ray. Oh wow. Yeah so and there's going to be Blu-ray versions of those with all of the trailers will have been um bumped up to oh, wow. HD. and also we've done some 
further research has shown that there's certain things which at the facts at the time when we when we've learned more things about the films if there's anything wrong we've done some corrections on things as well so it's going to be the kind of definitive version of that and you've got the the 40th anniversary of the video recordings act next year in july so, so much gonna, stuff it's gonna my yeah, wallet's so gonna we're, be we're, hard. Yeah, so we're gonna release we're gonna we're looking to release those for the 40th anniversary of the vra um so that that'll be coming out and then we've got some special announcements of some other things that are going to be coming up after that as well so that there's a few things i can't talk about but yeah there's a few there's a few things in the pipeline so i'm very uh, excited i feel like it's I'm christmas the now film, the, the, the um anthology feature film that i made midnight peep show which yeah. was in festivals last year in 22 that will finally be getting its release um that's being released on on valentine's day i think it's february the 13th it, it, it launches as kind of counter programming for valentine's and that's being released by dark star releasing so that's going to be probably hope maybe i don't know if they're doing any cinemas but it's going to be probably to streaming then but i don't know what countries that, that yeah. is as soon as i know more about that that is definitely coming out so i'll be supporting that so release much well. stuff it's amazing <laughs> well it's always good to be busy I was gonna say, <laughs> when do you sleep well you know <laughs> you don't need to um, but, but it's weird because when, you, when you're doing what you love, Mark, um, it it doesn't feel like hard work in the no. sense of I find hard work as if you have to do a job that you don't really like doing <laughs> because it means you, it means you you're, you have to go to somewhere you don't really want to be to do something you're, that doesn't engage you. So I find that that would, I would find more exhausting actually. So I'm very very lucky that I can work in my you know my chosen field and I you know I, I freelance a lot doing editing work and freelance directing bits or whatever just to pay the rent. But you know fortunately I'm I'm at a point where I can kind of sort of hopefully just just about self sustain it. I mean it's a struggle sometimes because being being an independent filmmaker of isn't course. a isn't a license to print money unfortunately like you really do have to love what you but do but it's all worth it by. isn't it if you do the things you love every day well absolutely because i don't i don't think anyone on, on their on their deathbed has ever said oh i wish i i wish i went to my boring nine to five job more <laughs> <laughs> my final question yeah, for you um my final question for you today i'm looking at the time um what I do on this podcast is I always end the outro with the guest and it doesn't matter who it's been. I've had Anthony Hopkins, Mads Mickelson, Kevin Smith, Orby Plaza, all these guests, but they always get the same final question. And then it's down to you today, Jake, to choose the song that's played. So you get to choose any song by any band or any piece of music after today's interviews, all edited and ready for the world to listen to. It will play out and it's down to you now on the spot to choose a song that means a lot to you. Okay. Well, in that case, I will choose um, Rebel Yell by Billy Idol, which is wow. one of my time favourite songs, and it kind of sums me up as a character as well, but as a big Billy Idol fan. Rebel Yell is an inspiring track for everyone. Gives them a bit of energy, get, get, gets you focused. <laughs> so Rebel Yell for me, thanks. <laughs> Perfect. Jake, I wish you all the luck with this release. Uh, I've been lucky enough, obviously, to see the advanced copy. I fucking loved it. Um, I'm fascinated now, and now, like I said, I would love to have seen the four-hour version and see more, <laughs> but... Everything you've talked about today feels like Christmas and there's so much stuff coming and uh, our paths will cross again. I'm sure before long we'll be in the same oh, room absolutely. screening I mean, and uh, let's have absolutely. a beer and uh, carry on talking again in the future. Absolutely. Um, it's been a pleasure, Mark. Really enjoyed talking to you. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the genius that is Jake West. Please, after you've listened to today's interview, go and check out Mancurian Man, The Legendary Life of Cliff Tremlow. It's so good and easily one of my documentaries of the year. Jake's done a fantastic job with the material he's been given and it's something that you should be extremely proud of. 
Also now I want to give a big shout out and thank you to Jake for coming on the show. We've been in the same room and at so many festivals and events at so many different times and it's incredible but this is the first time we've actually properly spoken and we felt this connection straight away and as I said at the start of today's interview you're welcome back on Mark and Me whenever you want and if you want to record a 24 hour special talking about the history of film and cinema and horror you are the man to do it so thank you so much again. If you've enjoyed today's episode and you're a listener out there right now and want to share this, it would go down really well. All I ask in return for listening to these free episodes of Mark and Me is for you to go on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, hit that retweet button, the share button or on Instagram, put it as part of your stories or even just like it. It helps that algorithm and gets those episodes seen because let's be honest, no one knows how they work, especially on Instagram. But the more people that see it because you share it means that more people get the opportunity to then check out Mark and Me and hopefully stick around for the future and suddenly fall in love with this podcast. I'm a one-man team, people don't realise this, I'm a producer, I'm the editor, I'm the interviewer, I do all the scheduling, all the management, all the social media, so if you guys can just share it in return, that's all I ask. Also, just before I go, I do want to give a big shout out to the sponsors of the podcast, Folio Society, who in my opinion are the best book company in the world, and also Richer Sounds. If you're in the market for a brand new TV, home cinema surround sound system, record player, or anything to do with audio and visual, check out richersounds.com. And if you're feeling generous as it's Christmas, why not jump on my Patreon account? All the money that goes in via Patreon goes right back into the making of Mark and Me. I don't pay myself, it basically means I can go out there, put this podcast on all the different directories out there, travel the country to record as many interviews as I can, and do as much as I can to give you guys at home as many episodes as I can. And just before I go, I do want to mention again my YouTube channel. It's only been going just a couple of months, but it's racked up thousands of views. It's doing so well, and I'm going to be making sure that I give you guys on there at least a video a week. So please, if you haven't checked it out, go and subscribe, do a thumbs up, and leave a lovely comment because it really means a lot. I'll be back in only a few days' time with another brand new episode. So until then, look after yourself, stay warm, and I'll speak to you all very soon. Set you free.
to me, baby. 